If you would, open to Exodus 25. Exodus 25. So last week we saw Moses go up the mountain into the presence of God where he spends 40 days and 40 nights on the mountaintop. And what he hears on the mountaintop is instructions for building the tabernacle. God starts his speech to Moses after the six days of silence. On the seventh day, God broke the silence and called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. From everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarn, fine linen and goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins, and acacia wood, oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. (coughs) And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show you, that is, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so shall you make it. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to focus our attention on your word tonight. We thank you that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword even if it is providing a list of seven different types of material for your dwelling place, Father, it is able to make us wise to salvation. So help us, we pray. Strengthen my voice. Strengthen us all to listen carefully and to come into your presence and, like Moses, to listen to what you have to say to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is not fundraiser week. The giving is in the sermon title because this is how God starts his speaking to Moses. Giving in the church, as in the Old Covenant, is always and only voluntary. Our giving should be willing. God says, I only want from those who give it willingly from the heart. That's the only kind of offering I'm interested in. A forced offering is of no value to me. The reason God advances is why we should want to give to him is that we get to participate in him coming to dwell with us. God dwells with his people on his own terms. We've seen that at length over the course of the book of the covenant. God says, this is how you will be if I dwell with you. But he also expects and asks for our heartfelt participation. God doesn't drop the tabernacle fully formed out of heaven and say, all right, I'm here. I've moved in with you. He spends all this time, the back half of Exodus, essentially describing, here's the tabernacle. Here's how you build it with your stuff, your people, your craftsmen, so that I can live with you. God wants us to give 
and he wants us to give because he dwells with us. That's the message of tonight's passage. We give because God dwells with us. So the offering is described in the first seven verses. Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. God doesn't want what you don't want to give him. And that's why the first thing he says is, from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. And from no one who doesn't. Those who give it unwillingly, those who don't give from the heart, I don't want that. God doesn't require a neighborhood watch committee. There aren't statistics posted publicly of, oh, so-and-so gave this much. How much did you give? Is your family keeping up with the Joneses? No, this is not an exercise in keeping score. This is an appeal for love's sake. If we think about the broader context of the book of Exodus, why would Israel's heart want to give God this offering? Well, a year prior, Israel had been slaves in the land of Egypt. They had had nothing. They had worked night and day for Pharaoh, making the bricks without straw. And now... They're free, and they have all these things, these luxury goods, that the Egyptians had given them. So Israel had been slaves. Oh, and in addition to getting all these goods from Egypt, God is feeding them with manna from heaven every single day. He's providing water for them out of the rock. Israel has everything they need given to them right directly by the hand of God. So when God says, I would like you to give back Israel, he doesn't come to them in Egypt where they're slaves with nothing and say, please give me all these luxury items so that I can build this tabernacle here. No, he waits, he frees them, he provides for them, he moves the hearts of the Egyptians to lavish all kinds of wealth on them, he feeds them, and then he says, please give to me. Please be like me. It leads to a question for us. Do we recognize God as our great benefactor? Do we look around at what we have and say, wow, everything I have today is a gift to me from God. God has delivered me from slavery to sin, to Pharaoh, to Egypt, metaphorically speaking. God has provided for me. And the things I have, I have not because I am more talented, skilled, hardworking, and successful than the people who don't have those things, but because of the generous favor and providence of God. It's January. Hopefully, your year-end numbers are in. You can go back over your spending from last year and say, hmm, where do I put my money? What things am I investing in? Where is this stuff going? How much is going to charity versus entertainment versus savings versus personal consumption, capital expenditure, etc.? If you hang on to what you have for yourself, it's a sign that you don't recognize God as your benefactor. If you don't give, then you are not like God who does give. God wants what comes from your heart, which is what he tells Moses, because he claims the heart. If the heart is God's, 
than what belongs to the heart is also God's. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So this works that backwards. Where your heart is, there you will put your treasure. Your heart is indwelling with God. You will bring these items to Moses for the tabernacle. How did Israel's hearts become God's? Well, it's what's narrated in the previous chapter. The covenant ratification. When the blood is sprinkled on the people and the people verbally affirm all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. God waits till they're in covenant with him. And when they have affirmed that and said, yes, we are in covenant with you, God. We accept your terms, the book of the covenant, that chapters 21 to 23. We agree. We will do that. We will live that way. We will walk in the justice and piety that you require of your people. That happens and God says, all right, do you mean it? Here's what I want. Here's what being in covenant with me entails. If you're washed in the blood of the Lamb, you will recognize it in part through your sudden willingness to part with your hard-earned money. And at the same time, right, those not washed in the blood of the Lamb are less willing to part with their hard-earned money. So what is it exactly that God asks for? Now this is a particular offering at a particular time. They're in the desert. They don't want gifts in money because there's not a golden gems and a Joanne fabric on every corner. God asks for gifts in kind. And so he lists these seven items. <clears throat> this is the offering you shall take from them. First, precious metals, gold, silver, and bronze. The classic trio. Uh, no platinum here. Gold is good enough for God. He asks for that. And then he asks for beautiful cloth, blue and purple and scarlet yarn, fine linen, and goat's hair. Now, we say gold, silver, and bronze. Okay, those are pretty standard. God is not casting three Olympic medals. Rather, the gold goes in the sanctuary in his immediate presence. The silver is a little further away and the bronze is around the outer court. The three levels of metal correspond to the three grades of holiness that we've seen over the last couple of weeks. You have the courtyard, the inner court, the courtyard, the holy place, the most holy place. Gold is for the most holy place, silver for the holy place, bronze for the courtyard. But then we get into the beautiful cloth. And this is not cheap stuff. Blue and purple. If you think about how many things in nature are blue and purple, you'll recognize that aside from the sky, which is very hard to dye cloth with, it's pretty tough to find a blue object in nature. The only way to obtain the blue and purple fabric was from the shell of a certain marine snail that lived off the Phoenician coast. It took thousands of snails to make a single gram of dye. So, in order to get this blue and purple thread, you had to go underwater, scrape off the snails from where they live, bring them up, pound them out, and then that would yield you a certain amount of blue dye. This one, in contemporary terms, this would be like a pastor saying at a mega church, this is supercar Sunday. Everyone bring your supercars 
to give to God. Uh, one estimate that I've heard for the value of a purple cloak in this era in antiquity would be about $235,000 in today's money. So when God says blue and purple, he's saying, I want the most luxurious, rare, and expensive fabric there is. We're not talking a sheet of cheap polyester. We're talking the hardest thing to get. Oh, and the red, ramskins dyed red, the red dye is only a little cheaper. It's made from a worm that lives on land rather than in the sea. So to that extent, the red dye is easier to obtain. But again, you had to go out and collect 20,000 red worms in order to dye an acceptable amount of fabric. Then the God wants fine linen and the hair of goats. So there's three different kinds of beautiful cloth here. There's the goat hair, which is used for tents, has been used for tents in that part of the world for thousands of years. But in addition to the rough goat hair fabric, fine linen. This beautiful, cool, easily wrinkled fabric. So God asks for these things. And then two different kinds of leather. Ram skins dyed red. And then what is the second one? Well, we're not totally sure. The Hebrew word seems to be cognate with an Arabic word that describes the dugong or sea cow that swims in the Red Sea today. And therefore, some people think that this is the skin of a dolphin or a sea cow, dugong skins. I love the NIV, which has another type of durable leather. We won't commit ourselves to what kind of animal this is or what sort of leather this might be, but it's definitely leather. Whether it's terrestrial leather or marine leather, we don't know, but it's going to be used in manufacturing the tabernacle. So, metals, cloth, leather, God also asked for wood, just one kind of wood, the local kind, acacia wood that grows there in the desert. And then oil, that would be olive oil, not petroleum. Oil for the light, and then spices for the anointing oil, and sweet incense. And then finally, uh, at least, well, 11 kinds of precious stones, or 12 kinds of precious stones, rather. So, just a small shopping list. I think we're glad that today God doesn't typically ask for donations in kind, at least when it comes to running the church. Could every one of you bring five sanctuary chairs? But there are plenty of churches that ask for that kind of thing. And God's people didn't complain. God has costly tastes. He doesn't want to live in a tent made of cardboard and corrugated iron. He's not into that. He asked for a tent that will stretch Israel's budgets to the limit. What's the point? We should be offering God our best, not our worst. We should not stay out till 2 a.m. on Sunday morning, partying or working or doing anything else, and then drag ourselves into worship half dead at 10 a.m. Well, God, here's your cardboard and corrugated iron. I'm here, barely. We shouldn't offer to the Lord our God that which cost us nothing in terms of what you put in the plate or your children or your attitude or your singing or your praying or your sermons or anything else. 
Don't give to God something that you don't want. Give to God something of value. So what do you give the deity who has everything? Right, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He has all the marine leather in the Red Sea. He has blue and purple and scarlet worms. And he can make the yarn. But he wants Israel to participate in him coming to dwell with him. And so he asks for all of these things. The only thing you can give the deity who has everything is yourself. And that's what God indicates when he says, from everyone who gives it willingly from his heart. You signal your commitment to God, body and soul, by giving to God not cheap gifts and the latest dollar store specials, by giving him the best of whatever you have. As a way of saying, Father, I am yours. That's what Israel was called to do. So what's the point of this list? Well, the first thing I want to note is that the list of what's wanted comes first, and then the statement of its purpose comes next. Verse 8, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. If you go on one of those TV shows where they give you a random assortment of things and say, quick, make something, and what would you do with blue yarn, goat hair, sea cow skins, a big pile of bronze, and a jug of olive oil? Now, you probably wouldn't say, a royal tent. That's exactly what I'll make out of these things. God gives this list, and you read the list, and you say, what on earth do you want all this stuff for? Blue, purple, scarlet yarn, fine twine, linen, ram skins dyed red. Like this list occurs over and over, and every time you read it, it sort of lulls your brain to sleep. As this stuff is so random, I can't wrap my mind around it. But God is saying, I'm perfectly capable of requesting something before you know why. Obviously, Moses didn't give this information to the Israelites immediately. He was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. But imagine that he was somehow able to relay in real time back to the Israelites. All right, he's speaking. Okay, he's telling me that you need to bring olive oil, purple thread, red leather, and goat hair, and some of your gold. You can just hear Israel howling. What? God seriously expects us to give up all those precious things we got from Egypt? I can hear them yelling in my mind now. They would be outraged. We had nothing. We were slaves. Then the Egyptians gave us their stuff. And now God wants it all. We, with the benefit of hindsight, would say to them, people, you are getting far more than you're giving up. You're giving up these things that you think are so valuable that are actually pretty worthless in the desert. And in return, God is coming to live with you. What is more valuable? A ball of scarlet thread that you can't do anything with? Or the presence of the living, almighty God who is feeding you with manna every day, who just delivered you from the most powerful nation on earth, and who has promised to give you a homeland forever in his presence. Folks, this is true of whatever God asks us to give. We might say olive oil. That's kind of random. God can come to you at any time, and he will, and say, give me your health. Give me your strength. Give me your money. Give me your retirement. 
Give me your plans for today. Give me your plans for next year. Give me your spouse. Give me your girlfriend. Give me your child. Give me your job. Give me your immigration status. Give me your church. God takes away these things. He also gives these things. But when he gives or takes, when he takes, when he says, here's your offering to me for today, you say, but I didn't want to give you my help. I didn't want to give you my immigration status. I didn't want to give you my child. And again, right, someone who could see the end of the story would say, don't be so asinine. You are getting far more than you're giving up. God is perfectly capable of asking you for something before explaining why he wants it. But when you find out why he wants it, you will say, that's greater than anything I could have come up with for that thing. God was able to take a pile of onyx stones and sheep leather and acacia boards and turn it into the most glorious portable tent in Canaan. God can take whatever you and I give up for him and turn it into a greater blessing than we could have imagined. So what's the point? Well, the first point is Emmanuel. God dwells with his people. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. He's committing to a particular earthly place. This is huge. The patriarchs wander around Canaan, building altars, calling on the name of the Lord. But where do you find God? Well, he may or may not manifest himself to you in any particular place. Jacob finds a place to sleep, and then he sees a vision of God there and says, truly, God is in this place, and I didn't know it. God is sometimes here and sometimes not here, but God says in Exodus 25, it's going to be different from now on. God is committing to a particular earthly place, not as an office, but as a home, as a dwelling place. And he will keep that dwelling place in the midst of his people where they can find him. He wants to live with us. We don't have to go out into the desert to find him. We don't have to wander up and down building altars and hoping that he'll send fire down on them. We don't need to travel to Sinai. We don't need to travel to Zion. Israel is favored with a permanent residence wherever they go. Wherever you go, God goes with you. God descends to them. They don't have to climb up to him. That's what this request is for. That's what the giving is all about. What kind of God is this who descends to his people, who makes his home on the earth, who is willing to come to you and come with you? Who says, oh, we'll meet at your place. We'll do it where you are. You don't have to come to heaven. I'll meet you where you're at. The God who does this is the God whose name is Emmanuel. He commits to living in the midst of his people. The second thing we see is that it's a sanctuary. Let them make me a sanctuary, which is simply a Latin word for a holy place. God dwells in a holy place. God doesn't say, let them make me a tent. It is a tent, 
But the major outstanding characteristic of this tent is that it is holy. It exists for God. This is a special place. A place that is not just for any ordinary usage, but is specifically and entirely for God's usage. And God will do it with his people's participation. Let them make me a sanctuary. Not, I'll make me a sanctuary. Not even you, Moses, will make me a sanctuary. But they, the people as a whole, will make the sanctuary. God is not moving in unilaterally. He doesn't create the tabernacle himself. Right? They got up in the morning and there was manna there. He can do that. But he doesn't have them get up in the morning and there's the tabernacle there. They have to build the thing. It's long. It's complicated. It's difficult. It's expensive. The seven kinds of material alone are costly. Never mind the work to assemble them into a beautiful and harmonious whole. Israel participates in the coming and the dwelling of God. God dwells with his people but he does so through our participation. He invites us to be part of the process with the strong implication that if we refuse, the process will never happen. The people are saved in this point in a corporate sense. God has delivered them from Pharaoh. He's concluded a covenant with them. After he's done all this for them, he asks them to give back and build a dwelling place for him. The New Testament switches up the metaphor a little bit where we in the New Testament, we are described as the materials. We are the blue and purple and scarlet yarns and the fine twine linen and the bronze, silver, gold, wood, oil, spices. We are living stones being built into a holy temple in the Lord. Israel got to play the role of God's beloved son and be the temple builder here in Exodus 25. The temple builder is the one, the royal prerogative, the making a place for the God to come and dwell with you. God says to Israel, you are my beloved son whom I called out of Egypt. Now you are also a royal priesthood. Build me a temple. In the New Testament, we have something better. We have a builder who knows what he's doing. God's son, Jesus, is the great temple builder and he's setting up the true temple that the Lord set up, not man. This temple will be perfect, the one that we are being built into because Christ is the master builder. So God calls on his people to be temple builders here in Exodus 25, but he retains complete creative control. That's verse 9. According to all that I show you, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. There is no Moses going off the reservation Moses, don't get any ideas in your mind about how I must want to be worshipped. Don't invent your own ritual. Don't offer your own fire. Don't put your own design flourish on the side of the tabernacle. That is not wanted here. Moses is supposed to make the exact thing God wants, period. Creative control. Have any of you seen an architect's model? I saw one of Michelangelo's in a museum in... Washington, D.C., I don't know, 12 or 13 years ago. Magnificent. It was a little church, about five feet tall, carved in wood. And he had made this to show the people building the church what they were supposed to make. 
God seems to hold out the idea that there is something similar, this pattern, this miniature tabernacle that Moses can look at. Then he goes down the mountain and tells Bezalel and Aholiab, make it like this. Here's what I saw on the mountain. Those architects' miniatures are amazing. God makes one of them and he says, you build this temple exactly like this. God still wants us as his church, as his dwelling place, to conform exactly to the pattern of holiness he has set out for us. He wants us to live and to worship in the way he's called us to live and to worship. He wants us to be living stones in his temple set apart from common use for his personal use. That's what holiness means. That includes how we worship and how we live. That's We need to be holy in our worship. We need to be holy in our lives. That's why we spent so long looking at the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant because God has a certain way that we ought to be. You think it's hard to find blue, purple, and scarlet yarn? It's even harder to find people who are dedicated to obeying the Word of God, who have made that covenant with Him by sacrifice, who are washed in the blood, and who now say, Lord, I'm ready to be a living stone, and if you put me in the foundation... If you put me in an undesirable place, I will go there because you are the temple builder and to just be part of your temple, to be part of the dwelling place for God by the Spirit is all I've ever wanted. When God asks you to give something precious to Him, will you be ready to give it? When the church isn't exactly to your liking, will you be able to distinguish between God's desires, God's plan, and your desires, and your plan. Christ lives among us by His Spirit, bringing us to His Father. That's why we give. Give yourself to God, because God lives among us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that Your Son is the temple builder. He is the one who by the Spirit is building us into the perfect temple, the perfect group of living stones, the ultimate dwelling place for you. Father, come to us, abide with us. Help us to be your people, help us to be holy, help us to learn from this passage about the construction of a temple, a dwelling place for you. Father, we thank you that you are here, that you dwell in the praises of your people. We ask that you would make us truly holy in Jesus' name. Amen.